from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Luisa Beck from The Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at The Washington Post. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm... This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, May 12th. Today, where have all the Uber drivers gone? And how the pandemic economy fueled deadly protests in Colombia. As people get vaccinated and as a lot of the pandemic lockdown measures are are being eased, people are going back to Uber and Lyft, particularly in major city centers, in numbers that haven't been seen for months. But there aren't enough drivers out there to meet that demand. So basically, those drivers who quit um, in the face of the pandemic have not yet come back to the apps. Fez Siddiqui is a tech reporter for The Post based in San Francisco. He spoke to producer Sabi Robinson about the shortage of drivers for Uber and Lyft and what that could mean for the future of rideshare apps. So how did you come across this story? Like, what made you first aware of this driver shortage problem? The Uber and Lyft CEOs and their senior management alluded to this problem on their corporate earnings calls this week. One of our top priorities is to rebuild the driver base. Our research shows that drivers who left the platform last year primarily did so for two reasons, concerns about safety and concerns about there being enough rider demand. Uber also introduced a program where they were offering incentives. Uber acknowledges more drivers are needed and have launched a temporary $250 million stimulus boost to entice more drivers. With the boost, Metro Detroit drivers working at least 20 hours a week stand to make around $30 an hour. And that that was a big hint that they were having a real problem. It has been rare in the history of these relatively new companies for them to struggle to attract drivers in the first place. And passenger demand, we knew, had sagged, but we sort of thought that Uber and Lyft were these lifelines for people who had either lost jobs or been furloughed, were otherwise struggling to find work during the pandemic. But the fact that Uber had to launch this massive program to try to attract drivers was a sure sign that something was wrong. Have you come across this problem while taking a Lyft or Uber ride recently where, you know, the fare is high or you're not able to get a driver? Yeah, the, the way you'll notice it is if you're trying to hail an Uber and you live in a big city, whether you live in D.C. or I live in San Francisco, you'll get onto the app and, you know, a driver who might normally show up in two, three minutes, it says that driver is eight minutes away or it says that driver is 12 minutes away. If I need a ride in 20 minutes, I need them to be there. Lately, that that hasn't been the case. It's been a lot of cancellations, a lot of no-shows. It primarily takes about, like, 30-something minutes sometimes for for you to get a response, and then sometimes you don't. And it's sort of abnormal. It's a little bit jarring if you're used to the experience on the app when you see the actual fare. And it sort of just flies in the face of Uber's traditional model, which is have as many drivers as possible, as close as possible, so that you can make the trip as convenient as possible. Is this driver shortage something that is mostly being seen in big cities or is it affecting rural areas as well? 
So Uber and Lyft's presences aren't huge in rural areas, but they definitely are big uh, and getting bigger in the suburbs. So as you get into areas outside of city centers, the way you'll see this manifest is there's going to be a lower density of available drivers. And so that wait, particularly in the suburbs that might have been 5, 10 minutes, might now be 15 or 20 minutes. And that fare that might have been might be $20 or $30. So it's just having ripple effects across the network. And what are you hearing from drivers about why they're deciding not to drive for Uber and Lyft anymore? So there are a few factors at play. First, when we first went into lockdown, there was a big fear over services like Uber and Lyft because we didn't know necessarily all the facts about how COVID spread. We didn't know what the risk was of picking up passengers and, you know, transporting them in your car. And so drivers in large numbers um, stopped working for Uber and Lyft. And COVID fears were a big one. There was also the fact that passenger demand dried up seemingly overnight, where there were trips available throughout the day and it was lucrative to drive for these services, that was no longer the case. And so that drove a lot of folks away. But I I think it's it's worth mentioning that people always say, like, if you can't find any any drivers, why don't you just pay them more money? And that's a really common sentiment. I mean, from the driver perspective, Uber basically exhausted a lot of goodwill by the way it treated drivers. Prior to this supply shortage, drivers had seen what they regarded as years of dwindling earnings. They felt like where they had previously been making, let's say, more than $1,000 a week doing a reasonable amount of driving, they were only making hundreds. And they saw a lot of their bonus uh, you know, incentives disappear. They felt like they were doing longer hours for less money and For a certain subset of drivers who did a plurality of the driving, at least, you know, these are folks who are driving 30, 40 hours a week who are treating this like a full-time job, but they aren't entitled to a minimum wage. They aren't entitled to unemployment, sick pay, vacation, healthcare. So a lot of the benefits that might be traditionally associated with the full-time job that they were doing uh, just weren't there for them. So there was definitely frustration over this feeling of not being able to get ahead despite doing uh, as much or more work than before. So why should they go back to the app in its time of need? Uber, for its part, and, and Lyft too, say that the fares are higher than they've been in years. That because of the way the supply is dried up, the surges, uh, passengers are used to surge pricing. Those surges are way up. So drivers serving areas where there are very few of them available to pick up passengers can make more money than they're used to making. That's the argument the companies are making, but drivers feel like that won't last. Well, last year, it almost seemed as if some of these issues were going to go away for drivers in California, right? But that ended up not happening. Yeah, So Prop 22 was a ballot measure in the state of California that was backed by ride-hailing and food delivery apps uh, who poured hundreds of millions of dollars, at least $200 million, into trying to supersede a state law that had passed granting Uber and Lyft drivers employment. So under the 
original legislation, Assembly Bill 5, Uber and Lyft drivers would have been granted full employment, giving them a minimum wage, giving them health care, giving them benefits such as sick leave, uh, vacation days, unemployment, and everything associated with being an employee. The companies argued that that cut into the core of their business models, and it took away the independence that they said was key to running their businesses. So they stood up a ballot measure called Prop 22, aiming to put it to the voters and arguing that drivers, in fact, wanted to be independent. Prop 22 would have cemented their status, uh, gig workers' status as independent contractors, while providing limited benefits, an earnings guarantee, a healthcare subsidy, and other benefits that were not necessarily what they might find in employment, but were, uh, you might say, a watered-down version of it. It passed overwhelmingly at the ballot box in November. Do you think this decision to pass it played into the shortage at all? I mean, there's definitely an argument that if drivers were employees all along, this might not have happened, right? Those drivers, they would have been taken care of during the pandemic. Uh, Uber and Lyft would have emerged with a pool of workers who they had a little bit more control over, but who who they could dispatch to meet the customer demand. And when you talk to drivers who've experienced this, who left as a result of the pandemic, it's really striking how some of them just don't see themselves returning. They feel like they've been exploited and they feel like the earnings opportunities aren't worth the stress that was put on them from the job, the depreciation they face, the maintenance costs of keeping their car in a state of good repair to keep driving. And so they feel like they can never go back. It's interesting the extent to which you will find that within the pool of existing drivers. As for attracting new drivers, I mean, Uber can now say, as a result of Prop 22, they've instituted a limited set of benefits. So uh, healthcare subsidy being one of them, an earnings guarantee. It's not exactly the minimum wage, but it is an earnings guarantee. So they can say to this maybe this new driver, that there is a model there to make this a little bit more sustainable. But among that set of drivers who've left, it's hard to see them making an argument that they've changed. What do you think this shortage means for the future of these gig companies like Uber and Lyft? Do you think that this moment, you know, paired with the pandemic, paired with Prop 22, is going to push these companies to sit down and truly rethink how they're structured or or do you feel like it may pass? One thing I'll say is it's hard to see these companies sort of taking this and, and rolling over in the face of it. Uber and Lyft have always operated at a loss. The pandemic was interesting because they were able to argue and convince their shareholders basically that if we don't give a ride, we don't incur the loss. So the company's finances were not as thrown off as one might expect the ways that they've had to change and evolve their businesses in the face of this. I think one thing that I found particularly interesting is just how much of Uber's business now is rooted in delivery. I think on their recent earnings call, they disclosed that deliveries are making up a majority of the business now. 
One thing that Silicon Valley does uh, in the face of problems like this is they tend to innovate. And I don't mean that in sort of the rosy, wide-eyed sense of like, oh, they'll come up with some great technology solution that'll fix this. No, they'll adjust the app or they will find a new way to get drivers into this system. The system that has basically been criticized as exploitive and unsustainable, but that has also been lauded for at least giving people an opportunity to make money particularly in the early days of the pandemic. So where where they see a need, I think they will they will corner that and they will devise ways to get drivers back into the fold. And so that's why I'm hesitant to say that this might be a long-term issue for them, but certainly it is a major issue for them right now. So we'll have to see how they respond. Fez Siddiqui is a tech reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Sabi Robinson. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, There's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Since April 28th, we've been seeing a nearly unprecedented wave of protests in Colombia. These are significantly larger and more deadly than the protests that we saw there in 2019 and 2020. Anthony Fiola is the South America and Caribbean bureau chief for The Post. The epicenter is the city of Cali, but they have spread to hundreds of cities and towns across Colombia. It is unusual, the sheer breadth of these, and also the divisions that have been witnessed on the streets with police using what protesters decry as excessive force. And some of the protesters engaging in what the police describe as unlawful vandalism, really creating this scenario there where people feel that some cities, especially Cali, have become something of a tinderbox. How many fatalities have there been in these protests up until this point? At the moment, the Ombudsman's office in Colombia has received information of 42 deaths so far. The attorney general hasn't confirmed all of those deaths. Some of the human rights groups have placed the number of deaths as high as 47. So there is some dispute over those numbers. But what we do know is that dozens have died in these protests. And we also know that, you know, at least 10 or more have also died at the hands of police officers who have been accused of using excessive force, including opening and using rounds of live fire. So why are we seeing these protests? How did this all start? Initially, these protests began as a reaction to an incredibly unpopular 
tax bill that was proposed by President Ivan Duque. What that did is it touched a nerve in Colombian society after a year in which the pandemic has worsened inequality and worsened poverty. People felt that Duque's plan fell heavily on the middle class, even on some people who consider themselves to be of, of quite low means. At the same time, they felt that it protected his wealthy constituents in the conservative voting bloc. The result was a widespread anger particularly among unions, but also among groups that represent people of color. Um, Afro-Colombians, as well as indigenous leaders, turned out against this tax bill. And, and essentially what you saw were building protests that began over the tax bill, but in fact have now morphed into basically an expression of, of deep grievances over the inequality and poverty that exists in Colombia today. It is one of the world's most unequal nations. Now, back in 2019, we had seen protests against the Duque government, essentially from some of the same people that are protesting now. But what we're witnessing is that the pandemic has deepened the problems that were pre-existing in Colombia. Tell me more about that, because I think we have seen in a lot of different places this relationship play out in different ways of how the pandemic affects the economy, affects income inequality. How is that working in Colombia? Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the few countries in the world where we already have some hard data that show us that poverty has increased during the pandemic as much as 5.8% higher or worse than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. What we can also say is that a lot of that is falling on the urban poor and the urban middle classes who are falling back into poverty. Essentially, what you're seeing are people who, during the last 15 years or so, have managed to claw their way up the social ladder, have fallen far down again. This is due to a lack of jobs, you know, lockdowns, as well as, you know, the general global slowdown impacted Colombia. And as a result of the recession that happened last year, many people lost their jobs and many people remain without jobs. Particularly affected were people in the informal economy, people that do not have formal work contracts. You know, these are maids, construction workers, you name it. As the economy stopped, a lot of these people simply stopped having incomes. Now, there was some kind of government relief there, but many feel it was not enough. And they're deeply, deeply angry that the government would have proposed a tax that fell on the middle class and also, you know, reached the lower middle class when protecting the wealthy who mostly did better in the pandemic than everyone else. And what about this tax law? Is it still going to happen? No. In fact, they've rescinded the tax law. I think that happened, you know, more than a week ago. And yet the protests were not quelled. And it's largely because the protests, as I said, were not real. I mean, yes, they were about the tax bill, but at the same time, they're about these deeper grievances that remain in Colombian society and are getting worse. You mentioned that there are concerns that some of these fatalities among protesters are because of an excessive use of force by the police. Can you tell me more about what people are seeing in terms of how police have responded to the protests? There have been a rash of videos that have been shared on social media that have captured some of the incidents. You're seeing, you know, videos emerge where police have thrown gas canisters into buses that are loaded with protesters. Yeah. 
these are things that have not played well around the world. We have seen a dramatic international condemnation of what's been going on in Colombia from the United Nations, from the Europeans, and in fact from some American politicians as well on the Hill. And essentially, I think this is one reason why, at least in a couple of the cases where the videos have been the most clear, you have seen the government respond by actually arresting two police officers, which is an incredibly rare thing in Colombia. And how have the police been defending their actions? They have been saying that they are up against groups of infiltrators and violent demonstrators, some of whom have come from the ranks of leftist guerrilla movements, from drug cartels. You know, human rights groups in particular have said that that runs the risk of police in some ways painting the protesters with a broad brush and in some ways offering an excuse for them to use excessive force and even lethal force because of this portrayal of protesters as somehow being in league with armed groups. I think the issue that human rights groups and others are trying to flag is that there's been very limited evidence produced by the government to suggest that that's actually true. It is true, though, without question, that property has been destroyed, including, you know, some of the transit system in Bogota. Police stations have been attacked. There's no question that they are facing a level of aggression. But, you know, for the most part, observers have said that the vast majority of the protesters have been protesting peacefully. And then for the government, if there is this global outcry that has started in reaction to what people have seen in Colombia. How is the Colombian government responding or kind of framing this to an international audience? Well, they have launched a dialogue. Um, You know, the first talks took place this week. There was no formal agreement that they came out of that. There's also some concern that they're not meeting with wide enough a group of, of participants, but at least they have started some form of negotiations, and we'll have to see where it goes from there. There are more strikes that have been called. And, you know, I also think that the the Colombian government has been seeking to get its point across that it is trying to deal and control demonstrations that they feel have been infiltrated. I don't know that that argument has necessarily bought them purchase with some of those groups, you know, in, in some of those politicians and, and leaders that have been condemning the Colombians for what they've been doing. But nevertheless, they are making their argument. As you mentioned, the economic pressures that people are facing in Colombia are very similar to what a lot of people are facing around the world and especially in Latin America. Is there a concern that the protests and demonstrations and and violence in some ways that we're seeing in Colombia could spread further to other Latin American countries? I think absolutely true. I mean, one of the things we're seeing during the pandemic is that countries, especially middle-income countries and to some extent low-income countries, have had to overspend and bust their budgets in order to cover the cost of the pandemic and to absorb the economic shock that has come from economies deadening around the world for almost a year. And as a result of those holes, they are seeking to plug them, sometimes with unpopular measures. But I think there is concern that as more and more countries face this dilemma of how do you pay for the pandemic, they're going to be facing some similar social questions and similar social unrest that we're seeing in Colombia. 
Anthony Fiola is the South America and Caribbean Bureau Chief for The Post. This story was produced by Alexis Diao. it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.